I remind you that the purpose of the temple is to shift us into that celestial thinking, is to push us through a telestial, through a terrestrial, and into a celestial. And so as we go through these covenants, not watch, step back, soften your eyes, relax your eyes a little bit, and see what they're trying to do. Will you act like he acts? If you want to go to the celestial kingdom, how must you act? Which laws must you obey? And there it is. I want to be what he is. So I'm going to do what he, I'm going to let go of all of the lesser things. I don't want to be terrestrial. I don't want to end up in a terrestrial kingdom. Therefore, I'm willing to let go of everything that's terrestrial because I want to be what he is. Now, do you see how this is kind of the pinnacle of that? Name one possession that God has that he isn't freely willing to share with even the least of us. Let me give you an example. What is perhaps the most godly thing a human being can do right now? Procreate. Procreate. To whom does God give that gift here on earth? Every one of us. Tell me what that tells you about Heavenly Father. So, are you going to, wouldn't it be a hypocrite, wouldn't it be hypocritical of you to say, I want God to give me everything he has and be unwilling to give God everything that you have? There's a disconnect there, isn't there? And it doesn't work that way. And so, practicing to be like him, I get to practice in this life to be like him and so he says, here it is. Here's how you practice that attitude. So I introduced the law of the church. and the Doctrine and Covenants, the Lord sent them to Ohio and said, I'm going to give you a law. And we looked at that law. And one of the law, one of the, one of the attributes of that law is to remember the poor and consecrate. But before we can ever live an outer version of that, we have to live an inner version. So we're going to go a couple sections before the law. Remember, section 42 was designated by Joseph as the law of the church. So we're going to go back a few sections as he prepares us for that law. Section 38 is where we were. So let's go back to section 38. And I'm just trying to introduce four attitudes. You'll find more but we're just going to take time for four attitudes. This is what I call the inner law of consecration. These are the attitudes I must have if I'm ever going to live the outer law of consecration, which we'll talk about next week. Do you remember from last week? What was inner law number one? What was inner attitude number one? All that I am, all that I have, every earthly possession I've been given, every human trait, every ability is God's. If I remember that, if that's my attitude, then I, I will freely give to him all that he asks, won't I? It's not hard to give back to him what's already his. So let me ask a piercing question. I know we asked this last week, but I hope you thought about it. What is the only thing 
that's yours? What is the only thing that's yours? Your choice. And ironically, what's the only thing God can't take away from you? If he took away agency, he would cease to be God, wouldn't he? What did it cost God in premortal life to maintain agency? Not ironic, the only thing he can't take away is the only thing that's mine. And that's what he asks me to give him. But everything, all that I am and have is his lent to me for his purposes. See that attitude? Scale of one to 10, how difficult is that attitude to have? Scale of one to 10, what per, okay, scale of 100, one to 100, what percentage, don't answer this one because it's very judgmental, but I want you to just ponder it. What percentage of Latter-day Saints that you know would you say, I've seen that attitude in them? I've seen that attitude. Yeah. Now, I would hope that if I asked the people who know you, one of the people they would think about is you. I have seen that attitude. How many, now answer this question, how many of you could honestly raise your hand and say, I have seen someone with that attitude? Everything they have, everything they possess, they believe is God's. What kind of person? Describe the person without naming them. I mean, how do you explain it better than that? Um, they strive for unity. They strive, you know, to raise everybody up, to encourage. Pride. Well, I mean, they're not perfect. No one is, but how many, how many, in how many other areas of their life does this attitude trickle in and just make a difference? If I'm willing to give God all that I have, am I willing to keep his commandments and serve? Do you see how contagious that attitude is? All that I am and all that I have is his. And therefore, gratitude fills my heart that he lent it to me. Okay, now let's get to the next big one. Let's go back to section 38. I want, this, I want the Doctrine and Covenants to introduce this one because you'll find it in that same section where he's kind of preparing our hearts to live the outer law of consecration. Section 38, again. Let's read it and you word it. What's the attitude? 24, 25, 26, and 27. Interesting that you pointed out that the person, whoever you're describing, male or female, we don't know, but the person you're describing seeks oneness, tries to be one. Interesting that that flows right into where we're going. All right, anyone want to read 24 through 27? Who's my reader? Let every man esteem his brother as himself and practice virtue and holiness before me. And again, I say unto you, let every man esteem his brother as himself. Okay, I got to pause. How many times have you seen that? How many of you times have you seen God? Let me say that again. How many times in the scriptures have you seen him say something and then say, 
Let me say that again. That is not very frequent, is it? Let me say something important. And then he, in the very next verse says, let me say it again. What's he really saying here? Pay attention, folks. This is important. Keep going. For what man among you having twelve sons, and no respecter of them, may serve him obediently? He saith unto the one, Be thou clothed in robes, and sit thou here, and to the other, Be thou clothed in rags, and sit thou there. And looketh upon his sons, and saith, I am just. Behold, this I have given unto you as a parable, and it is even as I am. I say unto you, Be one. And if ye are not one, ye are not mine. Okay, someone word it. What's the attitude here? What is the celestial attitude that will that really is at the heart of so many of my temple covenants? All that I am is his. All that I have is his. And anyone want to word it for me? What would you say? All that I do is his. Okay, actions, but what's he really emphasizing here? It's not so much obedience as much as he's emphasizing what? I do specific things in this one. It's my connection to you. In other words, my attitude is, I'm going to word it like this. I am no better than anyone else. I am no better than anyone else. It has to do with the value you place on people. And the way you place value has to do with how you treat them. I am no better than anyone else. Now, I never carry dollar bills, but I should because I need to illustrate. What makes a dollar bill worth a dollar? The paper it's printed on, the ink it uses is not worth a dollar. It's an attitude, right? In other words, I accept that this piece of paper, we all accept that this piece of paper is worth a dollar. Now, how do you treat a dollar? I don't want to lose it. It's worth a dollar. But what if I were to add two zeros? Would you treat that, that piece of paper different than the other one? Why? Why would I treat it differently? Because it's not the man. <clears throat> so anything I put Ben Franklin's face on, you would treat that way? <laughs> All right. I'd like to trade some Ben Franklin papers with you, Elder Rossing. Is that okay? We trade some Ben Franklin. You show me yours, I'll show you mine. You get what I'm trying to say, right? What if that piece of paper had six five zeros. Nope, six. What if that piece of paper had six zeros after the one? How would you treat that single piece of paper? In other words, as the value increases, what else increases? The way we treat them. Why is it that we treat other people horribly? Because we don't see value in them. We dehumanize them and we devalue them. If you are going to be a celestial person, if you are going to be like Heavenly Father, what value will you place on all people? 
it's really hard to think about if you really push it. So here is Heavenly Father. And here is me. Now, I don't, this is a horrible thing to do, but I need to do it for an illustration purposes. Bear with me. If God places a value, let's say a hundred, I'm just, I just need a number. God places a value on me of 100. Now, the reality is that's infinite, right? <clears throat> and over here is someone that I love. <clears throat> and I place a pretty high percentage of value on the people I love. It's not hard for me to realize what's this number. So, oh, sorry, I wrote the name wrong. Someone I love. What's this number? 100. That doesn't surprise me, right? And I'm very comfortable with that because I push them in high value. I hold them in high value. And so it doesn't shock me, doesn't surprise me, nor does it something I don't want to think about that God does. But over here is someone I hate. No pointing the finger at anyone. This is a low number, isn't it? I treat them poorly because I don't value them. I don't see value in them. And so I don't treat them well. Here's the hard thing if you really think about it. This is a low number for me. What is this number? 100. Now, if I ever want to go there, what must this number be someday? A hundred. Do you see the work ahead of me? Therefore, as part of consecration, he says, practice that. Practice the value you place on others because it's nowhere near the value he places on others. And you need some practicing. It's easy to love the people I love. But these are the ones. These are the ones that really measure how celestial I am. It's not the people who love me that tell me how celestial I am. Forgive me. It's ex-wives. It's ex-husbands. It's that person at work who is horrible to me. It's an abuser. It's someone who deliberately hurts you. That's a little harder, isn't it? That is the measure of my celestialness. This number is misleading if I use this number to measure how celestial I am. This 
is the number. Because for him, the number is 100. And unless this number is 100, can I go where he is? I cannot. I cannot go where he is until my attitude is their value is not less than my value. Their value is infinite. I am no better than anyone else. Now, how hard is that commandment in our world today? We don't do that one well, do we? Would you say it's also problematic if you give someone a value greater than your own? It's also problematic because if my value to myself is low, let's suppose I value myself at a 12. What is this value? A hundred. And until that becomes a hundred, can I go where he is? Say that again. Until I value myself the way he values me, I cannot go where he is. I am not thinking like a celestial person. It doesn't change if it's me. I know a lot of people who are horrible on themselves. They're unkind to themselves. Well, guess what? You are Heavenly Father's creature, and that cannot be pleasing to Him the way you treat His child. Do you agree with the doctrine at least? Okay, so part of the attitude I have to develop is, I'm no better. Tell me what we wear in the temple. Who wears white? Why would he ask us to do that? Why would he ask us to wear white? Why do we all wear white? Do important people wear a different uniform in the temple? I had the privilege one time of being in the temple with Ezra Taft Benson when he was president of the church. It was a life-changing moment for me. President Benson was with me in the temple and guess what he was wearing? Guess what he was doing? The same thing I was doing. Did he sit in the front row? Did they escort President Benson to the front row? They did not. And guess what I learned that day? I saw a picture of a celestial attitude. Now, do you see the work ahead of you? Do you see what you covenanted to do in the celestial room, in the endowment room of the temple? I promise I will have this attitude. I will, I promise I will have this attitude. So let me just take a few minutes tonight and give you some help. Let me give you some help because pride is a universal sin and we all suffer for, for, from it. And pride is the one sin that makes everyone else sick except for the person who has it. And so we need to fix this. We need to fix our pride. We need to fix the pride that is causing us to hold back someone else's value. So let's turn to the Book of Mormon. No book teaches about, talks about pride like the Book of Mormon. Would you agree? There's not a book on earth 
that is better at understanding what pride is and how to overcome it than the Book of Mormon. Turn with me to Jacob chapter 2, probably the best sermon on pride you'll ever find. Definitely better than anything you'll find in the Bible. This is one of the great and tr the, the plain and precious truths that are restored. Jacob chapter 2. I want to focus on verse 13. I just... I find so much value in verse 13 because I think Jacob just defined pride in three phrases, kind of even three words. Jacob broke pride down to three words. Jacob chapter 2 verse 13 suggests that pride is this word, which causes this word, which causes this word. Take a moment and ponder the words of verse 13. Now, where's the, what's the first word? Is the first word abundantly? Is the problem having lots of something? Is that where pride starts? Is where you have lots of something? Well, I can answer that question with this question. Did Jesus have lots of something? And was Jesus proud? Okay, so it's not abundantly. The problem isn't abundance. The problem, I suggest to you, I submit to you, the problem of pride begins with this word. Anyone agree with me? Why do you agree? Why would you say the problem is more? That is my answer as well. The problem is the comparison. The problem is I have more than you. I think that's the start. More. What are some of the mores that we have? More money is an obvious one, right? I have more money than you. But give me some maybe some more subtle mores. I have more loved ones. I'm more liked. I have more education. I'm more righteous. I have more followers. I have more toes. That's definitely one. I think one of the things we do sometimes, I think in family settings, is you can even have. Um, like my, my children turned out better. Or yep. My children turned out better than your children. I have more successful children. I have more square footage. My house is more clean. It, the reality is it doesn't matter what the more is. It's going to be a potential source of pride. Now, what's the next word? Because I have more, go to the very end of verse 13. What, what's, what's the next word? I think I'm better. Because I have more, I think I'm better. Now, what do I, I'm going to split this into two words because it just, just it doesn't matter. It's the same thing, but it's going in two different directions. What do I do to you when I think I'm better than you? I persecute. I persecute. Now, what word in verse 13 do I do to myself because I think I'm better? 
I lift, I stiffed my, I, yeah, I just, I'm lifted up. I would suggest those words define pride beautifully. I have more, I'm better, and I'm going to make sure you know it. Well, what about the other side? Yeah, it's always pride, right? It's always pride. I think, or I see that you have more, therefore you are better and I persecute. Is that humility? It is not. It is the very definition of pride, just in the opposite direction. It's evolving, but backwards. <laughs> <laughs> it is. Yep. I'm better than you because I'm more humble than you are. I'm, I'm more humble than you are. It's always boils down to more, better, persecute. And if it does, it qualifies in my book, by the Book of Mormon standard, as pride. Um, me too, it makes me think there's a great quote from Maxwell where he says, self-pity cannibalizes all of our concerns. <laughs> so when you're stuck in that mode of self-pity, uh, yeah, it just makes it harder to make You got it. Now, I do this with a smile on my face, bear with me, but let me illustrate. I think Dr. Seuss was absolutely brilliant, and he wrote a book to show us how absolutely ridiculous this thinking is. I want you to watch for more, better, persecute. Are we watching Dr. Seuss? We are reading Dr. Seuss. Who knows where I'm going? The Sneetches! All right, ready? I know the wording's kind of small, so I'll read, but you, I want you to see if you can identify more, better, per, per, persecute. Now, here's the ridiculous thing. They flip it. All right, ready? Now, the star belly... Now, the star belly sneeches had bellies with stars. The plain belly sneeches had none upon thars. Those stars weren't so big, they were really so small. Now, here's Dr. Seuss's little jab. Ready? You might think such a thing wouldn't matter at all. What's the next word? But. But because they had stars, the star belly sneeches would brag we're the best kind of beaches on this, best kind of sneeches on the beaches. Do you see it? We have more, therefore. We're better. With their snoots in the air, they would sniff and they'd snort. We'll have nothing to do with the plain belly sort. And whenever they met someone, they were out walking. They'd hike right on past them without even talking. Do you see them persecute? I have more. I have something that you don't have. Therefore, I'm better, and I'm going to make sure you know it. I'm going to parade it in your face, and I'm going to persecute you. And it continues. When the star belly sneeches went out to play ball, could a plain belly get in the game? Not at all. You could only play ball if your bellies had stars, and the plain belly children had none upon theirs. When the star belly sneeches had frankfurter roasts or picnics or parties or marshmallow toasts, they never invited the plain belly sneeches. They left them out cold in the dark of the beaches. They kept them away, never let them come near, and that's how they treated them year after year. More, better, persecute. Now, what is it that makes me better? I have a star and you don't. So you not having a star, I'm using to what end? 
I'm better than you because you don't have a star. Now watch how ridiculous this game is. This is the dumbest game in the whole world. Then one day, it seems, while the plain belly sneeches were moping and doping alone on the beaches, just sitting there, sitting there wishing their bellies had stars, a stranger zipped up in the strangest of, of cars. My friends, he announced in a voice clear and keen, my name is Sylvester McMonkey McBean, and I've heard of your troubles, I've heard you're unhappy, but I can fix that, I'm the fix-it-up chappy. I've come here to help you, I have what you need, and my prices are low, and I work at great speed, and my work is 100% guaranteed. Then quickly, Sylvester McMonkey McBean put together a very peculiar machine. He said, you want stars like the star, star belly sneech? My friends, you can have them for $3 each. Just pay me your money and hop right aboard. So they clambered inside and the big machine roared and it clonked and it bonked and it jerked and it burked and it bopped them about, but the thing really worked. When the plain belly sneeches popped out, they had stars. They actually did. They had stars upon thars. Now, years of being persecuted do what? Then they yelled at the ones who had stars at the start. We're exactly like you. You can't tell us apart. We're all just the same now, you snooty old smarties. And now we can come to your Frankfurter parties. Now, once you've had a taste of more, is it easy to let go of? Good grief, cried the ones who had stars at the first. We're still the best Nietzsche's and they are the worst. But, how in the, but now how in the world will we know, they all frowned, if which kind is what or the other way round? Who's going to take advantage of this? Then up came McBean with a very sly wink, and he said, things are not quite as bad as you think. So you don't know who is who. That is perfectly true. Come with me, friends. Do you know what I'll do? I'll make you again the best sneeches on beaches, and all it will cost you is $10 each. Belly stars are no longer in style, said McBean. What you need is a trip through my star off machine. This wondrous contraption will take off your stars so you won't look like Sneetches who have them on thars. And the handing machine, working very precisely, removed all the stars from their tummies quite nicely. Now, this is the most ridiculous thing in the world. What are they about to do? Now they have a new more. What is it? The very opposite of the thing they used before. But it doesn't matter, right? It doesn't matter as long as you can find a more. As soon as you do, your mind is going to go here and then you're going to go here. So watch what they do. Then with snoots in the air, they paraded about. They opened their beaks and they let out a shout. We know who is who. There isn't a doubt. The best kind of sneeches are sneeches. Without. I have more. I'm better. And I'm going to rub it in your face. Then, of course, those with stars got frightfully mad. To be wearing a star now was frightfully bad. Then, of course, old Sylvester McMonkey McBean invited them into his star-off machine. Then, of course, from then on, as you probably guessed, things really got into a horrible mess. Now, this is life. This is the stupid game we are playing if you let yourself. All the rest of that day on those wild screaming beaches, the fix-it-up chappy kept fixing up sneeches, off again, on again, in again, out again. Through the machines, they raced round and about again, changing their stars every minute or two. They kept paying money. They kept running through until neither the plane nor the star bellies knew whether this one was that one or that one was this one or which one was what one or what one was who. Then when every last cent of their money was spent, the fix-it-up chappy packed up and he went. Who wins this game? Not you. None of us win. 
the only way we win is to stop playing. This is a dumb game. I'm smarter, I'm richer, I'm more righteous, I'm better looking. The color of my skin is better than yours. My gender is better than yours. This is a horrible game. And no one wins except the enemy. He laughed as he drove up the car, uh, in his car up the beach. They never will learn. No, you can't teach a snitch. Now I'm waiting for this day. I think Heavenly Father is waiting for this day. The temple is begging for this day. But McBean was quite wrong, I'm quite happy to say, that the Sneetches got really quite smart on that day. The day they decided that Sneetches are Sneetches. And no kind of Sneetch is the best on the beach. That day, all the Sneetches forgot about stars and whether they had one or not upon theirs. It's like Dr. Seuss went to the temple. It's like he read the Doctrine and Covenants. You covenanted. You covenanted to do this. I'm not going to play the game. Not with myself. Not with you. I'm not going to play the game. I am not better than anyone. I'm not worse than anyone. I see incredible value in everyone around me. Not just the ones I love, but even the ones I don't. I'm going to change how I treat them because this number is going to change. I am going to start to love like he loves. That's what I covenanted to do. That's what celestial beings do. I am no better than anyone else. Thoughts? Again, let's get some helps. Let's go back to Jacob, 17 through 20. See if you can find some helps. What would help you have this attitude? What would help you have this attitude? Go ahead. Oh, anyone? What would have, help you have this attitude? Keep your brethren like unto yourselves and be familiar with all and free with your substance. How do you read that? Tell me how you read that. What are you going to do today based on what that says? Think of your brethren like unto yourself. What does that mean practically? What am I looking for in myself? Tell me what I'm looking for in myself. My more. You want an antidote? You want to stop doing this? Do, look for what? What do you look for in other people? You look for their more. It's pretty hard to think you're better because you have a more when so do they. Let me give you a scripture. Mosiah chapter 9 verse 1. When did Zenith stop hating the Lamanites? Mosiah chapter 1 verse, Mosiah 9 1. When did Zenith stop hating the Lamanites? He was sent as a spy to destroy them. But something happened and he no longer wanted to destroy them. What was that something? When I saw that which was good among them, they have a more. It's just not as easy, nor is it 
practical or ob- I'm not better because I have a more because so do you. You see what that advice is? Think of your brethren like unto yourself. Find their more. Okay, give me another one, 17 through 20. Jacob 2, 17 through 20. Give me another practical how to eliminate pride. Find their more. I think that's a brilliant one. What is it? Yeah, priorities. When God is my greatest priority, the more I focus on him and see them through him, what's going to happen to this number? When God is my priority, what's going to happen to this number? It's natural, right? So you want to eliminate pride? Make God your highest priority. But then again, could that become a focus of a pride? I'm more focused on God than you are. So I'm more humble than you are. Therefore, I'm better than... If you're seeing, if you start comparing how focused you are on God, it means that you've lost focus. You have lost focus. Who are you focused on? You. You. When he is your priority, you will not be. And who is his priority? Everyone. Brilliant. Give me another one. How about 19? What should I do with my more? What was the whole point I received a more for? Is it 19? When does he say, take care of people? Is it 18? 19? Is it 19? What is 19 saying? What should I be doing with my more? If God gave me a more, what was the purpose of my more? To bless. And what am I using my more for? To persecute. That's sad. Use your, purpose, use your more for, a pur- for the purpose in which it was given. And again, if I know that it was given to me, it's easier to do that, right? And that's verse 20. Give me another one in verse 20. It's hard to be proud of the things that God gave me. Remember what? One of the best ways to not think you're better is to realize everything. My more came from whom? God gave me my more. I'm not going to use it to persecute his children. Do you see the command? Any thoughts? Okay, we'll only have time for one. Let's just do one more. Um, I will mention the third one. Section 38 talks about have an attitude that there is enough. There's enough. What do people do when they don't think there's enough? If there's not enough, what do they do? They hoard and people starve. Do you know how much money, do you know how much food this earth could produce? Do you know how many people this earth could feed? 80 billion. And with improved technology, probably 100 billion. How many do we have? Seven. Is this earth capable of feeding everyone that lives on it? Easily. So why are there starving people? Because of an attitude. What's the attitude? There's not enough, therefore, when supply goes low, demand often goes high. There's not enough. What's the celestial attitude? What has Heavenly Father said from the beginning? There's enough for everyone. There is enough. Have that attitude. What would you do with your surplus if you had the attitude of, I have enough? I have enough. I'm good but I have more than that, what do I do with it? 
I give it to someone who doesn't. You see where we're going with that one? Okay, so that's number three. There is enough. I want to do number four, and I'm sorry to do this with five minutes to go. This is an hour-long discussion. But God says repeatedly in the scriptures, I won't even turn to how many times he says it, but he says, do not be idle. And I know the easiest way to interpret that is don't be lazy. But as I've read the Doctrine and Covenants over and over and over again, I hear him saying something else besides don't be lazy. I think what he's saying with don't be idle is you take care of you. Don't shift the responsibility of you to someone else. That's not consecration. You take care of you. Don't make anyone else take care of you. You take care of you. Just one quick quotation from President Kimball. Everyone quotes this. It's just, that's the best it's ever been said. So Everett Taft Benson quoted it. Gordon B. Hinckley quoted it. Everyone quotes this because this really is the essence of thou shalt not be idle. Come on, jump, jump, jump. There it is. Who will read? Just that top quotation. Please. The responsibility for each person's social, emotional, spiritual, physical, and economic well-being rests first upon himself, second upon his family, and third upon the church if he is a faithful member there. Pause. Maybe one more. There might possibly be one more, and that's the government. But it is a violation of consecration to go running to the government if... You can take care of you or your family can take care of you. That is a violation of consecration. If you can, you do it. If you can't, then you move down to the next level until you get to someone who can. Keep going. No true. So long as he can, under the inspiration of the Lord and with his own labors, he will supply himself and his family with spiritual and temporal necessities of life. Practice that. Don't make your mom clean up after you. Don't shift what you can do to your mom. You take care of you. Some of us are a little lazy. And we push the responsibility onto, onto others. I, it's, every time one of my children marries and they kind of start their life, there's this awkward little in-between. My son got married, but he used my dental insurance to pay for a dental crown. And the bill came, $250. What did my son do? What do you think my son did? That... <laughs> This is a lot of money. And I said, yes, it is a lot of money. Good luck paying it, son. <laughs> what was he thinking? What was his thinking? I'm still on dad's insurance. I'm the child. Therefore, dad pays. <laughs> now, this is a married, consecrated, returned missionary son who needs to do what? That crown is my crown. 
That is my responsibility. I Now, is that fun when you're newly married to pay $250 for a new dental crown? No, it's never fun. But it's part of that growing up, I am going to take care of me. I accept the responsibility. Tell me what Come Follow Me is trying to teach us. Stop putting the burden of your spirituality on the church. You own your spiritual growth. You don't need to go to church to study the scriptures. You should study the scriptures. You accept the responsibility. And I think that's the heart of consecration. If you can't do it, then who do you call on? My children cannot afford, my children that live with me cannot afford to feed themselves, clothe themselves, or house themselves, especially my eight-year-old, right? Is it reasonable that my eight-year-old should take care of himself physically? No. So who does that burden get shifted to? His family, his parents, and I gladly take it. But there's going to come a moment, there's this awkward moment, there's this awkward moment where he needs to what? Dad, I can take care of me. And I step away. We have that with Heavenly Father, don't we? We're very dependent on Heavenly Father. But there comes a moment where I need to say, Heavenly Father, I'll take care of me. And that is the heart of consecration. It's what he says over and over and over. Do not shift the burden of you to someone else. So allow me to push a little bit. Have you gotten lazy? And have you allowed someone else to take up the slack that you should be taking? Do you put your dishes away or do you have mom clean to put through them? Do you just throw your laundry down? Are you able to take care of yourself? If so, practice. Is God dependent on anyone else? No. God takes care of his responsibilities. Therefore, to be a God, what, must I, what kind of person must I be? I will take care of my responsibilities. That is number four. Helpful? Now, do you see that I'll never live the outer law until I have these attitudes? I'll never live the law of Christ. Heck, I won't even live tithing if I don't have some of these attitudes. But I'll never live the outer law of consecration if I don't have those attitudes. So now, what we're going to do next week is we're going to shift into, let's assume we have these attitudes. How do we physically live the law of consecration? What is going to happen someday? And let's prepare for it by living the inner law of consecration. And I say that in the name of Jesus Christ, amen.